With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now, Joe and Pat present Sports Talk's Person of the Day. Davis takes strike three called. Bartolo Colon, despite a lot of pitches, has put up nothing but zeros. And Olsen lifts his high in the air out to right field. Mazzara going back. Might have room. Whoa. He does. And the inning is over. Colon gets through five. Manny, explain this to me. <laughs> a uh, 45-year-old who's a lump, who's not in great shape, right. uh, must do some training, must do... Uh, keep, he keeps the legs in shape. They got sure. it, right? Those fat little strong. legs of his. Bartolo Colon got his 243rd control uh, career victory last night. Pitched the Texas, went five. The Texas Rangers beat Oakland eight to two. Uh, and uh, Cologne said through an interpreter, which he doesn't need, but he said through an int- uh, translator, uh, it's a little different tonight because I tied the mark of a Hall of Famer. I feel very proud and honored to do that. It means a lot. He's Dominican and the first guy from the Dominican to become a Hall of Famer. And of course, he was talking about the great. San Francisco Giant, Juan Marshall. Uh, and uh, Bartolo claims that he grew up admiring uh, Marshall and has gotten to know him. But uh, the 243 victories, most ever for a Dominican pitcher. And now Bartolo only needs uh, one more to become uh, the most victories ever for a Dominican, but I think a Latin American too, right? Latin American I, pitcher. I thought yeah. that's, yeah, it was yeah, for that's, all of Latin that's America. That's for all of Latin America, all for the Caribbean for sure. And, of course, the great Juan Marichal was inducted into the Hall of Fame ah, dang near as soon as he was eligible. Started the National League for the National League in the All-Star Game at Met Stadium in 1965, Juan Marichal. Mm. And that's a staff that had Gibson, Koufax, and Drysdale also. So picking out Juan to start that game was a pretty big honor. He must have had the best first half of the season out of all those guys. 1965. He went three, by the way. Back then it was none of that one. He went three. Koufax pitched in the middle. Drysdale pitched in the middle. They got a bunch of runs off a guy named Jim Maloney from Cincinnati, who for that era was an extremely hard thrower. The National League only won 6-5, to five, but uh, Gibson, and Gibson was your closer. Marischal's your starter, Gibson's your closer. I suppose. That's a good team. W- were they more, 
were All Star teams more normal size rosters back yeah, then? Yeah, they were twenty five guys? guys and okay. uh, twenty five guys, and uh, you know, I still say one of the thrills of my baseball fandom is having been there. Because I think I knew it at the time, and I know it for sure now. I was watching the greatest baseball team ever assembled, the National League team, 1965. Third base, Dick Allen. Shortstop, Maury Wills. Second base, Pete Rose. First base, Ernie Banks. Joe Torre was the catcher. He was not a Hall of Famer as a catcher, but he was a 320 hitter. And the outfield was Frank Robinson, Billy Williams, and Roberto Clemente. That was the backup outfield. The real outfield. <laughs> I was going to say, where's Willie? The real outfield was Willie, Henry, and, and Pops Stargell. Man. The backup outfield were three Hall of Famers. So that's the greatest baseball team ever assembled. Juan Marichal. So we we're sharing the sports person of the day honor today. Both sure. Juan Marichal and Bartolo Colon get a certificate. Put your club a run ahead in the late innings, and Marischal is the greatest pitcher I ever saw. Giants manager Alvin Dark said, Juan Marischal made his major league debut for the Giants against the Phillies on July 19, 1960. He retired the first 19 batters and carried a no-hitter into two outs in the eighth. Uh, He ended up limiting the Phillies to one hit in the route to a 2-0 complete game victory with 12 strikeouts and one walk. He was 21 years old. He would go 6-2 and that year. And most famous, of course, Juan Marichal, for something that Bartolo probably could not emulate, the tremendously high, high leg, leg kick. kick. Yeah. Bartolo keeps his feet flat to the ground, basically. <laughs> but a great movement, great competitor. And I got a lot of heat back in the day for uh, not voting, the, for voting for Bar. I was the Cy Young voter, and I voted for Bartolo when he won the Cy Young in over 05. Johan. Uh, Twins fans very upset. They wanted me to vote for <laughs> Johan because there were cer- certainly stats that favored Johan. But uh, when the uh, cha- when the pennant was being decided that year, I voted uh, that Bartolo pitched better. Wasn't Mariano? Did. Didn't didn't Mariano get some votes too that year? Because he had like a ridiculous ERA. I voted was... for him one year later than that. I had the Cy Young a little later, and I voted for Mariano, and he didn't win it. Mm-hmm. But the, there was not a dominant starter that year, and I thought he should have won it, but I can't remember which year that okay. was. Mariano. But it's hard, it's hard for uh, relief pitchers to win it, that's for sure. But uh, Bartolo Colon tied Juan Marichal with 243 victories, the most for a pitcher from all Latin America. The ride with Royce now continues. Personal sixty-nine offense. He was giving them the business. It's time for late hits. Well, thank you, Commissioner. But to simply say thank you for an honor such as this is not enough. I'm very happy to be joining these great men in the Baseball Hall of Fame. That is Red Shandies, and I believe, did I not read, he was the oldest living Hall of Famer. He died yesterday at age 95. I think he was the oldest living Hall of Famer. Now, uh, the redhead uh, got into the Hall of Fame through the Veterans Committee. The baseball writers never uh, voted him in. We were a tough, nasty group back then. Fantastic second baseman, both in the field, 
uh, and uh, as as a hitter, uh, mostly remembered as a Cardinal. Although he did uh, was the second baseman on the great Braves teams that won the World Series, he was traded by the Cardinals in uh, 1956, June 1956. Cardinals traded him with uh, Dick Littlefield, Jackie Brant, and Bill Sammy to the New York Giants for their but I don't think it should go to the United States, and that's hard to say. But she's very upset. You know, she ran to be on the uh, U.S. Soccer Board, got beat to the U.S. Soccer Federation, uh, but she thinks they're sexist and they uh, don't uh, do the right things with their money and all that kind of stuff. Of course, she's been a controversial figure. Uh, in, a, in an attempt to take control of the organization that Osterstizer Solar Solo ran for the uh, U.S. Soccer Federation presidency in February, garnering 1.4% of the vote. <laughs> so she's a wow. figure, but she gave CNN an, uh, uh, a... Uh, interview in which she said she hopes the U.S. doesn't get it. She's trying to stir stuff up in the U.S. Uh, Soccer Federation. Very upset at her for uh, coming out and saying this. Uh, I would think we're going to beat out Morocco, aren't we? 2026. It's I would the, think so. You know, it's the 250th anniversary of the United States of America that year. I would think they will make it. I don't that know what you sense. I don't know what you call 250. We got the bicentennial. Right. And we got the tricentennial. I don't know what you call 250, but we'll make a big deal out of 250, won't we? I would uh, think so. Yeah. I would think uh, the World Cup would probably end up here. Hey, Rachel Plout's got a terrific piece that is apparently going to be in tomorrow's Star Tribune, but it's already been posted online. It's on Paul and Susan Hannafel, who uh, are racehorse owners and breeders uh, in the Twin Cities here, they have they used American Pharaoh to breed a uh, you know to breed one of their mares, and the horse was uh, delivered here in the, in Minnesota, so it's a Minnesota bred, and it was uh, born a couple of days ago. This foal. And they have the Star Tribune has photos of it and everything. It's a great piece. How they took the shot. They had the money to take a shot. I'm not sure what it costs for American Pharaoh to come and have a cover, as they say, of the uh, mayor. But uh, check that piece out. It looks pretty dang good. My guy, Absa Ali, who I wrote a column on the other day, the steeplechaser from uh, Minnesota, University of Minnesota, Minneapolis, uh, grew up in South Minneapolis, comes from South Minneapolis, ran at Richfield High School, and set the big ten, set the University of Minnesota steeplechase record that has stood, stood since 1971 uh, a couple of weeks ago. Don Tim had the record. Well, he had the fastest qualifying team at the at time at the NCAA championships Wednesday night in the steeplechase. He will be running uh, to try to uh, be, give the uh, Gophers a uh, gold medal in the uh, steeplechase Friday night. Uh, what time is it? They have the time for me right here if you want to watch it. 7.54 p.m. 
Friday night, if you're a track fan, Absa Ali from the Gophers will be running for the 3,000-meter steeplechase. And the, U, and the Gopher women's track team, which is fantastic, won both the Big Ten and, out, and Big Ten Outdoor. They're going through their uh, preliminaries. Uh, they got some finals tonight, too, and the Gophers are involved in some of those. You know, the biggest change... In American sports, from when I was a kid, there's been a lot of them, the popularity of the NFL being one of them. Mm-hmm. But in the 50s, late 50s, in the 60s, and when we had the dual meets with the Russians in track, track and field was huge. We knew mm. who these guys were. It was enormous. And part of the bringing the U.S. and the Soviets together as far as at least competing with each other was... The that thing the that kicked thing. it off was track and field. Wow. Dual meets, track and field, dual, dual meets. meets. We knew all those kids, and we'd watch that two-day meet. And, uh, you know, it was not only the race for space. It was whether our guys could beat Valerie Brumel in the high jump or this win the sprints. And it was and it, it wasn't it was just, huge. It wasn't just the Olympics, right? It was just no, it no, was everything. Was, yeah, yeah. We knew, well, the Olympic trials were huge. The, the U.S. World championships. championships were huge. And Sports Illustrated, which set a lot of the agenda nationally back then because, you know, they've circulated huge numbers of people. They covered the indoor track season. They'd have a story every week on last week's Madison Square Garden, and then there they would. There was probably seven or eight of these huge indoor track and field meets, and we were always fascinated by that, reading about it because they ran on the boards. They said they were running on the boards, <laughs> and you know the the four forty was four laps. The eight eighty was. Uh, eight laps around that track it was yeah. the, and and they couldn't have a hundred yard dash they had to have it like a 60 it was a 60 okay. you know but in in the indoor it was a 60 and it was a it was a huge deal and uh the one place that it has survived is eugene oregon where the ncaa meet is but uh you you know steve pront steve prefontaine and the coach out there uh, i think it was bob bowerman and they turned Eugene into this track and field hotbed that it remains. And But it, the U.S. championships won't be there next year because they are redoing the whole complex in order to host the world championships. Uh, maybe next year or the year after, whenever they are. Uh, well, well, the year after would be the winner would be the Olympics. 2020 so it must be the 2019 world championships are there and world championship track meet is still a huge deal even if it's not in this country so so you explained terrell owens to me were you there uh, manny i'm gonna bring it up to uh, matthew collar but uh uh he has uh he has said he doesn't plan to go to the uh ceremony at, for Canton. Yep. He finally got in after all these years. And now he's not going. And he's been to Canton and he visited and he thanked everybody, but he says it's going to be the greatest day of his life, but he's not going to celebrate it at Canton. Yeah. I, I got to ask Collar. I, I don't know if Collar was there when uh, when he was with Buffalo, but I heard Collar talking about him earlier today that, uh, you know, he was uh, briefly a Bill there. So. Yes, he was. One, I think one year in Buffalo, one year in Cincinnati with his guy uh, Ocho Cinco. And, I mean, I, this just 
Kiss I, 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 I kind of get it because, you know, he obviously the media guys in the media were keeping him out because, you know, he, yes. had, he obviously didn't have a very good relationship with the media. I, I get the whole, we all know the whole story. Well, it story. was all conduct. It was not more. Yeah. Than, but, we, we have righteously indignant uh, guys on that committee who right. don't vote for guys guy because so, he's not a, he's not good for the shield. So, and, so I, I get him being <laughs> upset that he got, I mean, he should have been in the Hall of Fame five, six years ago, probably, you know, or whenever he was eligible. But this just kind of seems a little bit petty and childish on well, his part Well, plus it's, it's going to prevent him from taking any advantage of this. People yeah, are gonna go, look go at up him there to the podium, gonna, put your gonna, gold jacket yeah, on. Get somebody to present you, and you're going to be considered an idiot again. Randy Moss has go, gone out and changed his image. Yeah. Do the same, because I got news for you. Terrell Owens was just as talented as Randy Moss. For sure. As well, far as of, of, of the of the receivers in this ge- previous generation, they were the two best. To, to me, like him doing this, all he's doing is he's just giving more ammunition to all the guys who deliberately kept him out because now all those guys can say, yeah, we'll see, this is, this is why we kept him out because yep. he's being a baby about this and mm-hmm. being petty. And, I mean, he should go go to that podium, put his gold jacket on, and if he, you know, make it, you get, to have, you get to have somebody come up and introduce you, and some guy will come up and tell us, you didn't know the real Terrell, he's a great guy. You know, and if he him. wants to get up there, that's his opportunity to get up there and take some shots at some of the guys that, you know, if he wants to mm-hmm. rip into Skip Bayless or whoever right. whoever else is taking shots at him, you know, he can do that. That's his moment to do that. Collar will be with us momentarily, but I should, uh, an update on the uh, the obit that was run in Redwood Falls on the gal, uh, the yeah. 80-year-old woman. The uh, son, who, along with his uh, sister, wrote the uh, nasty obit about uh, the woman who uh, was their mother, has actually talked to the London Daily Mill Mail and said, we wanted to get in the last word. You, uh, you know, she's, when she came home a couple of times. We were yeah. in the room. She ignored us completely. And she, the guy basically, he changed his spelling from... Her name was Demlo, or the the family name was Demlo, D-E-H-M-L-O-W. He became Demalo, D-E-H-M-A-L-O, and he was in the Cleveland area. But the London Daily Mail, you can't beat him. They tracked her down, <laughs> tracked him down to find out what that was all about. Collar when we get back. So were you, uh, Matthew Collar, has come into the studio. Thank you for being here, sir. I took uh, a break from watching the tape. Okay. Were, uh, were you in uh, a working uh, young man in Buffalo when Terrell showed up there, or was that before your time? It was before I was working, but I remember it quite well because they gave him the key to the city. <laughs> and they thought this was the key. key uh, at what Was he just flown around, or they trade for him, or what they did? He had left Dallas, right? He right had after he left, left Dallas. Dallas, and then he signed with the Bills, and he had some famous quote about, North America's team or something yeah, like that. Right. It was like, actually, <laughs> Dallas is in North America as well, but okay, we'll accept it. All his goofy behavior, and this is just part of it, uh, it uh, hides the fact that when you look at his numbers, they're phenomenal. Yep. Far and, and away, one of the best of all time. Yeah. He, it didn't really work out when he was in Buffalo, and part <laughs> of that was they who, had Who bad was trying to throw it to him then? I 
think it was. That wasn't was, still J.P. Loesman, was it? I think it was maybe Trent Edwards or Kelly Holcomb or both. <laughs> I mean, it Former was, Viking great Kelly Holcomb. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it, it wasn't a very good situation for uh, Owens to come in. But even when he went to Cincinnati toward the end of his career, he was pretty good. And uh, overall, a dominant player and his performance in the Super Bowl on the broken ankle is one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of have to separate it with whatever he has done post-career, all the jackassery that happened throughout his career, and then what he actually did in terms of the numbers. And even Wade Phillips said that. He, He was like, yeah, you know, he's a unique cat, and there were times where he was frustrating, but... The guy was one of the most dominant yeah. players of the era. Yeah, you know the uh, the uh, pro the pro football writers do a lot of they they don't dominate the committee like they used to, but they are righteous jackasses in a lot of ways, and they're trying to protect the shield. And I know there was a guy, John Stedman in Baltimore, who was a really pompous, officious guy who fought for years to keep horning. Horning out of the Hall of Fame because I'm not. Everybody said it was because he beat the Colts a few times, but uh, <laughs> but it was because of uh, the gambling thing and the whole deal. But those it's, guys, that's uh, you know, we we get a lot of heat as baseball writers, but it's a big enough group that it's hard for two people to influence whether somebody gets in or not. It's been really fun to watch the reaction today because you can see who fancies themselves very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, because most of us, when we saw Terrell Owens wasn't going to go to the Hall of Fame ce- ceremony, we either said, this is typical. <laughs> this is him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. hey, that's, it's almost appropriate yes, because that's right. how he played his career. Well, some and, people are indignant, I'm sure. Uh, well, and some people are this. Wh- what is he doing? He's spitting on Vince Lombardi's grave. Like, uh, <laughs> I saw okay. Kenny Bruschi tweeted out this yeah. afternoon to, oh, T.O.'s making a huge mistake and all this. Mm-hmm. I just I, saw from Ed Werder, it was something about him disrespecting yeah. every player who's ever gone to the uh-huh. Hall of Fame. like, oh, Okay, relax. How about OJ? Is he disrespecting OJ? <laughs> I mean, is that who a disrespect? Does OJ feel disrespected? I want to know. My uh, thing, Collar, is to me, it's just more like a missed opportunity for him to go up to the podium and take some shots at the guys yeah. that are deliberately or, or kept even you better, out. Even Embrace better, the moment. get some guy to come up and say, "Boy, you didn't know the real T.O. Yeah. He's a great guy. He's done all this, and here he is, and he's you know, thank you, and that's all you got to do." I but even... I, nobody knows what. Again, nobody knows what the strategy is here. What he's, but I heard you talking to the guys this morning. There might be money involved here. I mean, would you be surprised if no. it was brought to you by Pizza Hut or something? <laughs> I mean, if he was hosting Terrell Owens' party but or I, whatever. I suppose all they'll do is say, uh, you know, and and another inductee today is uh, Terrell Owens, and, uh, you know, uh, see you later. I mean, he could always do a video speech via Skype mm. from his party. I don't I know. Don't I don't think mean, they'll just, let them. No, they're not, not so going to let somebody turn this yeah. into that thing. All right. Uh Kenny wandered in here to do traffic, so I think we'll have Kenny do traffic, and then when we come back, I want to talk to you about uh, what we've seen so far in OTAs and the minicamp. And uh, number one, I want to ask you, I've I've seen many references to the new offense being installed. I want you to try to tell me what's going to be different. Okay, uh, how is the DiFilippo offense going to uh, be different than the Shermer offense, which is 
considerably different than the Norv Turner offense. Will it, it be more it, like the Norv, the Pat Shermer offense? I think it's going to be more like the Pat Shermer offense because it had so much success. But with Filippo, the one theme that keeps coming from him and everybody else is that there are different concepts and wrinkles and so forth pulled from everywhere he's been. He got to be an offensive coordinator once with the Cleveland Browns in 2015, but he had no players. Yes. I mean, the quarterback situation was a mess. Their number one receiving option was a mediocre tight end. I mean, it wasn't a great situation. But then, you know, in Philadelphia last year, they had one of the most creative offenses in the NFL. And the RPOs, the run-pass options, got a lot of attention. But it was really, they used all sorts of different concepts. It wasn't just West Coast, or it wasn't just Air Raid. It wasn't just a running offense first. They did everything really well. And so is kind of pulling from different bags here, I think. That, that's my expectation. I mean, it's really hard to tell with OTAs, but that's from talking to everyone. What it sounds like it's going to be is a totally unique offense to him. Was it a peterson Filippo, uh team tandem there? Do we have any idea? I think it was much more Peterson. Mm-hmm. And DeFilippo will take some of the things that worked. I mean, when I asked him about it, how much it helped to work with Peterson, he said it helped more to have his own experience being the offensive coordinator for the Browns than it did necessarily even being with the Eagles last year. Still, he would be crazy not to steal from a lot of the things that they do. Mm-hmm. The interesting part for him, though, is going to be not only is the personnel better from the Browns, but I think their receiving options are better than the Eagles, Eagles had. were. Yeah. I mean, Nelson Aguilar and an old or, or kind of slowed down Elshon Jeffrey versus Thielen and Diggs, you can do almost anything with these guys, and I think that they're going to mix and match them a lot and find ways to get both of them in the slot and run all sorts of different routes at all three levels, the short, the intermediate, and the deep routes. Would that have been Mike Pettin? Browns coach at that I time. I believe it was, yeah. yeah that's, there's been so, there's been so many done, Browns right? coaches wasn't he, now. Yes. Wasn't he one and done? He was yeah. one and done, but uh, he was in Buffalo as a defensive coordinator. He's he supposed was, to be a fairly sharp guy. He was really good, and now he's the defensive coordinator of the Packers. Okay. Uh, he's Since he made such great use of Zach Ertz, we talk about him throwing at tight ends, but Zach Ertz was a hybrid. He was a, he's a receiver. He's right. a, do, do the Vikings have that guy? That's uh, that's a wide receiver with tight end size like Zach Ertz. They don't, which I, you know, at the draft I thought that they might go for Dallas Goddard, who mm-hmm. uh, coincidentally ended up with the Philadelphia Eagles. Yes, so now they have to like to give two their other tight end. Yeah, yeah, and uh, since the, right, they lost Trey Burton to yeah. Chicago, and the Vikings showed interest in Trey Burton, which makes me think that that was on their wish list that they didn't really accomplish. In the offseason, the only tight end they brought in was Tyler Conklin, a fifth-rounder who's not very quick. But with Rudolph, there's a lot of ways you could still use him, the things that Ertz did. Rudolph is not a deep option. I mean, you have to have a lot of time in the pocket to throw deep to Kyle Rudolph, or your quarterback's going to take a big hit like when Case Keenum found him for a touchdown against the Lions. But he is such a big body, and he doesn't drop the ball. I think he might have had one mm-hmm. drop last year, the, the pass in Carolina. So when you're talking about a red zone option, he's still really excellent for that. And I looked at the numbers when Keenum was throwing him the ball in the red zone. He was 17 for 19 with seven touchdowns and 12 other first downs or something like that. So those numbers don't add up. But he was really, really good in the red zone. And I don't know that Kirk Cousins had necessarily a red zone, pure red zone option like Rudolph. So that'll help him. But where 
Rudolph is limited a little bit more in what he can do for a route tree. It makes up for it, I think, with the wide receivers and Delvin Cook, who can do pretty much anything if he's back to 100%. Uh, the, uh, from a distance, you detect tremendous jealousy uh, from Zimmer about what the Eagles had to throw at him up front last year with these these bodies. And if there's anything this team did beyond getting a quarterback, it was, we're going to have eight guys up front who can rush the passer just like the Eagles did. Definitely. And they didn't really improve the defensive line a ton other than Sheldon Richardson, though I mm-hmm. think that Tom Johnson was underrated in that yes. position. But Richardson is clearly yeah. better than he is. Uh, where Plus, was, he's here trying to make money for right. Us. Yes, I he's mean, extremely he's, he's motivated. Gonna be, I think he's going to be an ass kicker because he wants to have a great year and then say, "See ya, pay me fifteen, sixteen, eighteen million, or goodbye." And he's in the perfect state because we have so much construction you can't drive ninety. It's just not possible. <laughs> um, but you're right about how motivated Sheldon Richardson is. The thing that they didn't really accomplish though was ha- creating any sort of rotation. They talked about wanting to have a rotation. And the Eagles even went out and got Michael Bennett to to add even more to what they have. They lost a couple guys, but he'll fill that spot. But the Vikings have a bunch of guys that they've sort of accumulated through draft picks or undrafted free agents, late draft picks, that you're kind of just in wait and see. Maybe one of these guys emerges. They bring back Brian Robinson, but he's late in the career. Not sure how many snaps he's actually going to play. That's okay. We stole all his money anyway. We don't care. That's true. That's true. And uh, training camp will be interesting to watch those guys. Stephen Weatherly, Sean Bauer, Adey Aruna, who they drafted this year. I was surprised, though, that they didn't go out and get someone. And there are still a couple of free agents on the market, like Robert Ayers, who used to play for uh, mm-hmm. Tampa Bay, that they could still decide to bring in as kind of late additions. Matthew, the, it's an amazing change to me that six years ago, I'd say, right, Manny? Six years ago, what? happened to defense this league was not yeah. going to have any defense it was going to be like the AFL in 1962 you had like five every, quarterbacks every game was going to be passes. 50 to 45 yeah. and then the Denver Broncos said well we're going to beat the crap out of the quarterback mm-hmm. and now I mean these guys are so smart the defensive guys in this league are so smart they say okay what we're going to do is rush the hell out of the quarterback, yep. and uh, and that's what everybody does now. And that's that is the uh, that is the weapon that they use to prevent fifty to forty five. Yep. You know? there, there's about six or seven good right tackles, and about fifteen you, guys. You made who a rush good point right today, side. saying that the right tackle is now just as valuable as the left tackle. And I think we saw that with Lane Johnson. Yes. I mean, for the Eagles. He's one of the best players in the league, and he's on the right side. And he mm-hmm. could easily play the left side, but I think they viewed that as just as valuable. So when you have 15 or 20 guys who rush the passer effectively from the right side and only a handful of good right tackles, and now the interior defensive linemen, they don't weigh 320. No. There's guys who weigh 280 who are rushing the passer all the time. Richardson's one of them, Aaron Donald. And Dominican Sue's a little bigger, but just monstrous guys up front. So I think that they're creating a lot of pressure, and when you look at quarterbacks' numbers, as you would expect, going from unpressured to pressured, it drops off significantly. That's what's kind of held them back from this going completely nuts with the passing stats. That was our guy Remmers, right? Trying to block the right side against Denver. 
uh, Von Miller. It and was, those guys. yeah, and they're the bad I mean, turf. He had no chance. Yep. I mean, Von Miller is hiding behind two other guys, and good luck, son. Go get him. And uh, it was Demarcus Ware on the other side, yes, right? Yeah. And, I mean, those are two. Those, yeah, those are two Hall of Famers coming off of the edge, and it's been hugely important for the Vikings too. And then teams have figured out how to react to all the motion and all the different personnel sets. Uh, last year, it was really interesting against the Rams, where Harrison Smith would line up in one spot. He would wait till the Rams got their call out, and then he would change spots. And that's mm-hmm. the first person you read as a quarterback is that safety. Yeah. So he was making a read based on the safety that would change as soon as he snapped the ball, and you saw he was a tick late. Then you get the pressure, and that's how you end up uh, derailing How significant is it that Remmers basically just practiced at right guard, from what I read? Is that that uh, now this is tying your wagon to Rashad Hill? Are there options here, or do they say, okay, Remmers is a better guard than tackle, and we're going to find somebody to play right tackle? I think they're going to just wait and see how this works out in training they camp and preseason. They can make the flip. Yeah, I mean, last year the starting five offensive line had never played together in a preseason game, and then they were good until players started getting hurt, and especially Nick Easton at the end, and and then that was a significant problem. But I I think it's a a little bit overrated, the the chemistry and all those things. A lot of these guys have been in the league before. Elfline's the only real young player. So uh, I think he could play either right guard or right tackle. I'm... I don't know which one is better. It's either play someone at right guard who isn't going to be that great, or you're talking about playing a right tackle in Rashad Hill that we don't really know if he's going to take another step. He's serviceable as a backup, but 16 games is a totally different story for him. Okay, we'll be back a couple more minutes with Mr. Collar. I uh, do uh, love the discussion as to whether Kirk Cousins is better than Case Keenum that you see, and uh, that we just had a rating where uh, that he was fifty. Yes, he is. He's better than Kirk Case Keenum. Can can we end the yeah. discussion? He's better than Case Keenum. Okay. He, it was the what is. the top one hundred. Yeah, and they had Case. Oh, they had higher, Kirk Cousins. Yeah. Fifty first. Yeah. Funny yeah, Kirk story Cousins about that. Was ninety fourth, and Case yes. Keenum was fifty first. Let's, let's accept Case. For the miracle that it was and get on with our lives around here. So I was in the locker room one day when NFL Network brought their people in Mm -hmm. to do their top 100 votes. And they were hand in sheets out to practice squad guys who never get in the game. There's guys filling them out, just writing all their own teammates. I can't remember who it was. I looked over his shoulder and his number one player in the whole NFL was Everson Griffin. Like, yeah. not Tom Brady or anything. He's, like, <laughs> he's just writing his own oh, teammates. Yeah. There are other guys asking reporters, oh, who's that guy from the Saints? He's their linebacker. And you're like, man, we uh, we shouldn't do this or give back, it any sort of credibility. Back in the day uh, when I was the sporting news correspondent for the Twins, I would hand out the gold glove ballots mm-hmm. and fill them out. I'd say, who's the second baseman? All they could, this is all. All you got to do is come up with one guy, and they couldn't do it. You know, they. they <laughs> what we don't realize is they don't pay any attention to the other team. Yeah. They don't. Right. They, yeah. They do that week, but they don't pay any attention to what the team did the next week if I've, they're not playing them. When you even ask them, hey, so what do you think of this guy on the other side? I mean, if it's not like a big star, yeah. they yeah. might be like, oh, what number is he? Because that's kind of how <laughs> they're, they're doing it. Yeah, yeah. What, what's his yeah, name? Or 
Uh, didn't he go to Nebraska or something? I mean, they're not watching everybody. This idea season. that they run home and all watch Monday Night Football is nonsense. No, and and they've got way too much on their plate. I yes, mean, if you, I don't blame them. Right. I mean, for the amount of tape that they have to watch and studying, and how complex things are on both sides of the ball, they don't have time. I to don't. Be I don't go to the, the uh, press box and watch other guys write, or you know, I mean, <laughs> right. stuff like that. I mean, it is right. We got to, but uh, Cousins, now what was a, the, the, one of the, they, they wonder if he's too aloof or aloof? something. Yeah. That's one of the knocks well, against the, him. Um, Does he uh, seem aloof? He seems like he's, he seems like he's got the routine figured out. You but. know, one thing that maybe rubbed me the wrong way is not, maybe that's a little too harsh, but well, well, somebody, Jed's problem is his teeth are too white. Yes, his teeth ahead. are white and his, um, <laughs> His smile's the same every time, yeah, which right. makes you think he's practicing. He's probably got a better jump shot than Judd, <laughs> the, the though, one, I would presume. The one thing you wonder about, though, is when he was asked in his opening press conference about his win-loss record as a starter yeah. for Washington, he didn't put any percentage of that on himself. It okay. was like, well, okay. there's a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. or what, you know. And when I, I was watching his uh, John Gruden QB camp from 2012, yeah. And every time Gruden would bring up a criticism, it was, well, yeah, but that wasn't really my fault. So he didn't accept that too well. Right. I mean, you wonder if that is what may have rubbed some people the wrong way. And there was at least one former teammate who said they wondered if he was all in on last season. But I don't know. I mean, I think what you have is a guy who is a very good quarterback, Mm -hmm. but not Tom Brady or Ben Roethlisberger. Which is okay. It, you know, so, he's so, one of the ten best in the league. He's one of the ten best. Yeah, in the somewhere league. in that range. So when you pay him that much, hey, it's always going to seem real like you're quick. Overpaid. What's the word on Teddy? Is he healthy? Sounds like he's doing good in OTAs, yeah. but it's OTAs. Yeah, and yeah. We'll nobody's see, chasing. He's going to have a chance, though. He's going to have a chance to win that job. And uh, what's Brad? Is Bradford playing? Did he go through OTAs? So it sounds like he didn't. But he's going to in mandatory camp, and then we'll see we'll where see if he he's can move at. Or not. Right. Yeah. I'd rather have I'd rather have Teddy than uh, Bradford. Definitely, I think that knee is chronic. All right. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks for coming in. Thank sir. you. And uh, I will not be here tomorrow, but you guys have a fine Myron time. In tomorrow. Myron's in here. Myron yep. Redcalf. A little more serious take on sports. Did you know Nissan EVs have traveled eight billion miles? Just a quick trip to Pluto and back. And what did we learn along the way? Well, that an EV can take on the world, like the Nissan LEAF. It can move racing forward and take your breath away, like the all-new Nissan Aria. We learned to make EVs that electrify. 8 billion miles driven by LEAF owners globally since 2010. Aria not yet available for purchase. Expected availability late fall. Subject to change.